Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. I am so excited. You know why? Because it's homecoming weekend. Welcome to the non-resident members of the Barah Ministries family, the people who study with us on the internet. Welcome to Pastor John Farley and his wife, Roberta. (laughs) We ain't seen this boy in two years. With all the COVID and stuff, you know, we couldn't get together. You may not know this, uh, John and Roberta, but I hope you do, that wherever I am is your home away from home. And when there was no internet, people were non-resident members of a church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the apostle makes it clear in his introduction to whom the letter is addressed. He says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those who are the chosen ones of God the Father, 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours. In the fullest measure. Well, greetings to all of you who are non-resident and welcome home. Here's your welcome home song, Home by Philip Phillips. Hold on to me as 
Well, the first official demotion of a Baran ministry person, our song worship leader has been demoted for the, <laughs> the lyrics. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, she's demoted. 
definitely. So welcome home. Home is Barah Ministries for all of you, and home is Jesus Christ. And we're glad to be home. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for orchestrating this gathering of your believers in Christ. Thank you for the ministry you've given to make this possible. Thank you for making perfect provision for this weekend. Thank you for allowing the safe travel of all who have come from out of town. We trust that you will get them home safely as well when we are finished. And thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Christ, to shed his blood in payment for our sins. And thank you for sending us, God, the Holy Spirit, to guide us into all the truth. Father, you've said that anything we ask in prayer, believing, we will receive. The Lord has told us that anything we ask in your name, you will give it to us. So we're asking. And what we want is as we listen to your word and as we engage in Christian fellowship this weekend, that, we experience, that the experience of this weekend is truly transformational in our lives, that we are different as a result of being here, that we see you differently, that we see ourselves differently, that we see the world differently, and that we are edified by our experience of each other. Conversely, Father, keep the enemy and his agents far from us and neutralize any thoughts of pettiness that may creep in during the weekend to threaten our unity. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. The homecoming lesson, Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, part one. And Pastor Farley will be coming up for that in a few moments. I, uh, you know, was getting, actually this whole thing sneaked up on me. I, I realized this morning, like people are, or yesterday morning, people are coming in. Holy smoke, it's here. And I think about a week ago, Pastor Farley said, do you, do you think it'd be a good idea if you told me what you wanted me to teach? And I said, yeah, I want you to teach about Jesus. <laughs> I want you to teach some truth. Well, you know, asking somebody to teach about Jesus is like asking them to do a Christmas lesson or a Resurrection Day lesson. There's so much material that it's almost impossible to figure out exactly what you want to teach, but I know that John uh, has a, a tremendous repertoire of uh, truth and that you'll really enjoy what he has to say. So it's a pleasure to welcome Pastor John Farley and his wife, Ber- Roberta, to Barah Ministries. And as you, <laughs> yeah. And as you know, Pastor John ordained me a little over 13 years ago. That was a long time ago. Without question, he is my best friend. Frankly, there's no one I trust with your souls more than I trust Pastor John Farley, and it's a pleasure for me to make room in this pulpit for him to teach you this weekend. What is a friend? Dina Maria Mulock Craik, a 19th century British novelist and poet, said it well in her work, A Life for a Life. She said, oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, to pour them all out just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take them and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. That is a perfect description 
of my friendship with Pastor John Farley. There's one shepherd, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and one set of sheep, us believers, and one church, and one unity, and one spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and a ministry custom made for you, whether it's Barah Ministries or a Lighthouse Bible Church. For me, there is one friendship that stands above the rest. My friendship with John, who is proven faithful in my good times and in my bad times. Who tells me like it is, with little concern for a filter. Who grounds his advice in the word of God. Who is a respecter and lover of my first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the many possessions I have been granted by God in this lifetime. The friendship of John is the one that I cherish most. Thank you, John, for being someone I can trust and someone I can count on. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 12, the Israelites prevailed in war as long as Moses held up his hands in the air. But Moses got tired. Exodus 17, 12, and Moses' hands were heavy. Aaron and Hur took a stone and put it under Moses, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And thus Moses' hands were steady until sunset. The Lord has surrounded me with friends, with a pastor and with two deacons, Deacon Denny Goodall and Deacon Larry Collins, our deaconess Denise Jones, our song worship leader June Murphy, and an amazing congregation to lift me up so that I have the strength to keep my hands in the air as I fight the good fight of faith. Monica Miller has a knack for saying amazing things at the right time. It's part of her spiritual gift, and last night she came up with another gem. She said, there are people who get me, and there are people who don't. And the Lord has surrounded me with people who get me. The ones who don't get me have left. Thank God. And thanks to all of you for making my life worth living. This song is dedicated to all of you. A song that I'm sure you're familiar with. That's what friends are for.
friends. So we're going to welcome up Pastor John Farley, and uh, he's going to go for 30 minutes, and then we'll take a break. And then he'll go for another 30 minutes, and then we'll take a break, and then I'll come up and keep us here till midnight. How's that? <laughs> and look, I know, uh, you know, uh, quite a few of you flew in today, and I know it's tired out, so just ease into this and just relax and enjoy yourself, and no pressure of any kind, just be relaxed. Come on up, John. Welcome up, Pastor John Farley.
four, five, six. Good. All right. Well, thanks for having me here tonight. I uh, was listening to that song. Let's see, who is it? It's uh, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Dion. Dionne Warwick, and, mm-hmm. and Elton John. And Gladys Knight. On Gladys Knight. Okay, so that makes perfect sense to me, it, it, for the most part. Because we got, you know, you, you got Gladys Knight, <laughs> Dionne Warwick, <laughs> Stevie Wonder. You know, two classy ladies and a blind guy. Elton John? What does that make me? That's what I want to know. Never mind. I don't want to know the answer. And all that stuff he said about our friendship, what he said. I want to get weepy up here. I got to teach. So again, thank you for having me this year to preach again at the Baram Ministries Homecoming 2021. Aren't you tired of me yet? I mean, I've come like to, okay. Glad that my wife's here with me tonight. I'm glad you introduced her. Um, that's why I'm going to get emotional. A lot of you know, I, I had a kind of a serious health problem last year and in this year as well. And um, I would not be standing here tonight if it weren't for her. Literally. I would not be standing here tonight if it weren't for her care over the last. Yeah, so you, if you're glad I'm here tonight, Maybe you can thank her for that, because it's absolutely <laughs> true. We love you, Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Roy, as usual, stole some of my thunder, because uh, I was going to talk about the assignment you gave me. And so now I guess I can skip to page seven. And <laughs> but anyway, um, it's true. You know, hey, teach on the subject of Jesus Christ. I got my own analogy. Teaching, telling a pastor to teach on the subject of Jesus Christ at a weekend Bible conference is like telling a mountain climber to climb 100 mountains in three days. Not coincidentally, however, I've been teaching and preaching out of the Gospel of John since the end of January. So, in fact, Rory was actually being quite kind. There's no better book to learn about Jesus Christ from than the Gospel of John. And the thing about it is, is that John faced a similar impossible challenge. He was told by the Holy Spirit to write a 21 chapter book on the subject, who is Jesus? Well, at least he got 21 chapters. But even at that, he said at the end, you know what? Most of the things I I would never be able to write about because it would fill all the books in the world. But these things I've chosen. So you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Um, oh, and by the way, Rory, the, uh, the title is Son of Man, Son of God. But it's okay because I've been confusing it in my head back and forth anyway. But John had a very specific purpose in mind when he wrote the Gospel of John. And he's answering the question, who is Jesus? I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, please. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John 20. Actually, we'll stop in verse 30. It says 31 up there, but. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. I make them work for it. You got some big Bibles. 
I know it's shocking that you need a Bible at a Bible conference. But, you know. Thank you, Denise. John 20, verse 30. Hey, I came all the way out here to preach. Not to hear you guys laughing about Bibles. I mean, come on. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now where are you going? It's my Bible. Ah. John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The Christ, the Son of God. Another way to say this is Son of Man, Son of God. I like the symmetry. Son of Man, Son of God. That's why I'm adopting this as the title for this series this weekend. But I went back and forth on this. Should it be Son of Man, Son of God? Shouldn't be son of God, son of man. Welcome to my world. I mean, I spent probably a half hour trying to think, it's better that way, better that way. <laughs> John, by the way, he says it both ways. Here he says son of man, son of God. But if you look, go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. And he says the other way. This is why I was confused. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. You're getting a tour, whirlwind tour of the Gospel of John. At least you will. We'll, go, we'll be in it a lot, actually, this weekend. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the Son of God, became flesh, the Son of Man. Come to think of it, I like that order better. I think you were right. right? It should be Son of God, Son of Man. It doesn't matter. He was God first. He was. But he introduced himself as man first. So it's just very confusing. And now, uh, it happens that we're in chapter 3 right now, back home in Lighthouse Bible Church. And so, um, if you turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 9. I don't know why I have that, but I don't have it up there, so... You can take my word for it. John chapter 3, verse 9. John chapter 3, verse 9. Told you we'd be in the Gospel of John a lot. At this point in time, Jesus has already been in uh, in the uh, place where John was baptizing, John the Baptist. He'd gotten his first four Disciples. It's all right, man. I know. I know this is like new to you, all this Bible study thing. So, of course, it was. Yeah. So yeah. So so here we are in the chapter three of the Gospel of John, chapter one, verses one to eighteen, is the most amazing thing that's ever been said about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the prologue. It starts with, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Then you move on and you, again you find out that um, 
John declares him, he's the forerunner, John the Baptist, declares him to be the Son of God and, and the Christ. And then he, uh, then he draws these disciples to him. They were disciples of John. Now they become disciples of the Lord Jesus. Then in chapter 2, he goes to, I'm just kind of up to date on where we are. In chapter 2, he goes to Cana of Galilee, where he performs his first sign. And now in chapter 3, he has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And now while he's there, there's a man who comes to see him. Comes to see him at nighttime, and his name is Nicodemus. He's a leader of the people. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher. He's everything that you, you would expect a man to be who would know the scriptures and know the place and time in which he lived, and yet he didn't. Let's see it. John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? He was talking about being born again. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things? They were in the Old Testament, by the way. But he didn't understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, in the context of of our subject this weekend, he's basically saying, if I tell you about the Son of Man, who is talked about in the Old Testament, and you don't understand that earthly person of Jesus, how are you possibly going to understand that I'm the Son of God, the heavenly thing? You see it? If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. And notice what he calls himself. The Son of Man. He starts with the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, there's that title again, be lifted up, so that whoever believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique, what? Son. Now we have who? Son of God. We have Son of Man. Now we have Son of God. And he's talking about salvation. He's talking about being born from above. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That just talks about his totally unique. That's what that's talking about. So that whoever believes in, in the son of God will not perish but have eternal life. Heavenly things. For God did not send the son, son of God, into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, for he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Son of man, Son of God. Now, see, the the Son of Man being lifted up, that was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. But the fact that, that, that he would be the Son of God wasn't. And the fact that by believing in this one, you'd have eternal life, that was something mind blowing as well. And if someone couldn't understand the earthly things, they would not be able to understand those heavenly things. Matter of fact, none of us can understand the heavenly things until we believe in Christ, which is why being born again is actually an earthly thing. It happens here on earth. We hear the gospel here on earth and we believe it. At that moment, everything changes and we become new creation and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling. Now we can start to to believe and know heavenly things. Son of man, son of God. So that's the the study of the subject this weekend comes from this passage. Jesus starts off with the Son of Man. 
And he says, if you can't understand who I am as the son of man, you won't be able to understand that I'm the son of God. You know, Jesus has a series of encounters that John captures. He, he has Jewish leaders that follow him along, and they always have a hard time believing in him as the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God. Now, if there's one thing they should have been able to believe about Jesus Christ, that's, that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. He gave proof after proof after proof of that, and that was something that, that they knew about. It was something in the Old Testament scriptures. I'm going to show you some of this in a minute. But you know what? When he said that he was the Son of God, that he and the Father were one, you know what they wanted to do? They decided to kill him. They decided to kill him. They could debate whether or not he was the Messiah. But when he said he was the Son of God, they were going to kill him. See, they, in other words, they, their, their, their mind, their hearts had no ability to even comprehend the facts that are right in front of them, that Jesus is God's Son. Not only that, but it so threatened them. And it so blew their mind and it so made them think that everybody, if that's true, everything I ever thought I knew, I don't know anymore. You, ever, you know how hard it is? You know, people that like that, Jesus would put it about, talk about old wine and old wineskins. He says, listen, once you've had the old wine, you don't want the new wine. The, the, the old is good enough, you see. The old was the, was the old ways. In fact, it was the Jewish religion in context. The new way is going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. There would be, most would not follow Jesus in that. John, in this gospel, presents seven signs. It's the heart of the gospel from chapter, chapter 2 through chapter 12. There are a series of signs. series of signs, and these are what John gives us to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want to give you a brief, uh, what, what I think of as an a adequate definition of a sign according to the Bible, especially according to John. A sign is a miracle, for sure. Turning water into wine is a miracle. Feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish is a miracle. But there have been plenty of miracles. Um, but a sign is a miracle with a message. And of the two, the far more important part is the message. You see, Jesus would say from time to time, he says, listen, do I have to always give you a miracle before you believe in me? You see, that annoyed him because he really said, there's enough here to believe in me. Out of my kindness and my heart, I will give you some miracle. That's what it really about to. But don't you dare demand them of me. He would say that. He would say, you know, when I went to a place that was full of unbelief, I couldn't perform any miracle there. And I wouldn't. A sign is a miracle with a message. Now, there are seven of them in the gospel, and they start, and there's a progression. For example, early on, our subject now, Son of Man, Son of God. Early on, the signs pointed to Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Christ, as the Messiah. The first sign, and I've already mentioned it once tonight, I think, is that Jesus performs a miracle. And that miracle is turning water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. I'm sure most of you probably are familiar with that. That's one of the more well-known, understood, studied signs in the Gospel of John. It's the first one that people come up with. So if you're reading the Gospel of John and you still have, you know, you still have some energy to read, you can get through chapter 2, maybe even chapter 3, and then people may peter up after that. Well, I've got a board with John now. I think I'll, uh, I don't know, I'll go to Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs. Not picking anybody on, but why would you? Every book of the Bible is awesome. But if I'm in the Gospel of John, I'm staying there. That's my point. It's just, 
Again, proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he, he performs this miracle of turning water into wine. And it was pretty much a private thing. Really, only, only his disciples and the ones that performed, the, 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 put the water in the, in the vessels that would then be turned into wine. They're the only ones that really knew about it. It was designed for his disciples, though. In fact, all of them were ultimately designed for disciples, that they would see not only the miracle, but also the message. Also the message. Hear the message. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Because you see, in the Old Testament, an abundance of wine... You can see this in the, in, in the prophet Isaiah's writings most particularly. When there's an abundance of wine being described, it's associated with the abundance of joy that will flow when the Messiah sets up his kingdom. The, Isaiah talks about the wine flowing down the mountains, for example, when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom. And so by his first sign, by, is turning water into wine for a wedding feast, that's actually an, an indication, proof, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of Man. That's the first one. By, again, by providing abundant new wine, Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is the Son of Man. And that was something they should have known because it was in the Old Testament. We'll talk in a minute more about who, who, what does it mean to be the Messiah. We'll see that, but for now, we'll just go along with it. It's Jesus, and he declares he's the Messiah by providing this new wine. But as you go along in the signs, you, you, there's a shift from the signs that point to him as the Son of Man to the signs that point to him as the Son of God. And it's punctuated, it culminates in the seventh sign. Jesus raises Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. Now, that proved beyond anything else that he did that he's the Son of God. Because only the Son of God has the power over death who can give life to the whole world. See, that was the final sign, and it showed he is God. He's the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. Now, I just mentioned that the Messiah is the Son of Man. The Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of Man. But I have not yet provided proof for that. And that's going to be the beginning of us looking specifically at this subject of, oh, I have that sign. Now, see, this is what's crazy about me. Well, no, it's crazy. I I think I have a slide and it's not there. I didn't think I had a slide and it is there. (laughs) But there it is. That's good. That's good information, right? Seventh sign. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus raises Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. I just talked about it. But in case you want to know where it is, we're not going to go there in the interest of time because there's so much we have to go through. Don't you hate it when the pastor says that? You're kidding me. And you don't even give me all the notes like Pastor Roy, so I can kind of like, <laughs> I'm relaxing. Don't, don't bother me. I, I'm teasing. Can I tease you a little bit behind the pulpit? Your pulpit, in fact. Yeah. I, have, I have no shame. But the seventh sign, Jesus raises Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. And again, that proves that he's God's son, the son of God. But now we'll begin our look in the scriptures at the Son of Man, as a title for Jesus, as the Son of Man. What does that mean? What does it indicate about Jesus? When we go to these passages, what do we see? That's what we're going to look at now. We're going to begin in the Old Testament because there's an incredible passage in the prophet Daniel. I'd like you to turn there now. It's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. 
give you a moment to get there. That's the other thing about forcing them to go in their Bibles and find scriptures. You can breathe for a minute. Drink, take a drink of water. They don't even see you. Man, what? Where is Daniel? Oh, man. I thought I knew John. I think I could find Jeremiah. I've got tabs on my Bible. Yeah, you do, don't you? Tricks of the trade. I, I'm looking around to see if people get in there. Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel. I was traveling yesterday on a plane. But you couldn't see the red tail lights because it was not headed for Spain. You said I was Elton John. <laughs> anyway, we'll proceed. Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. This is something that I think, you know, if you want to like uh, get people interested in the Bible that are really interested in the whiz-bang amazing stuff, Daniel is a great book for that. Because you see, what he's doing is he's having little visions, apocalyptic visions, if you want to call them that, and that is a form of writing, apocalyptic. And he's seeing all these images and symbols of a future time, way in the future. And he, but he, and he describes these things now, talks about them, describes them. This is one of them. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Picture that. He's looking in the night what can I see? What's going on out there? And he sees clouds of heavens all of a sudden. And one like a son of man was coming, coming towards him. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. It's an interesting title. By the way, it's the God the Father. Okay, Ancient of Days. Because he's from eternal, he's existed. So is Jesus. But again, this is the Son of Man now. It's gonna, we're going to talk about Jesus as the Messiah this weekend. We're going to talk about his humanity. And so he's seeing a vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah. That's one aspect of who Jesus is. He came up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion. Dominion, rulership, glory, and a kingdom. And that all the peoples of this earth, every nation, every language spoken, will all serve him. I just want to stop there for a second. You know, right now when we look about thinking about this world and who runs it and so forth, um, it's easy to get discouraged. It really is. And unfortunately, we know that before the Lord comes back, there's going to be a period of time that's going to be the absolute worst possible time you ever wanted to have and there's going to be a, a false Messiah. And he's going to pretend like he can rule the world. You know, he can't even rule his own household. I'm talking about Satan and, and, and his, the beast that's going to be coming. But in any event, um, one day this will happen. One day and it's still future. Son of Man will come back. And he will have dominion over the whole earth. Think about the, the breadth of this vision now. I just want you to think about Daniel and what he saw. Think about how did, that, how did he possibly see that? What did that look like? See, these are the kind of questions I ask when I can't sleep at night. But anyway, yeah, he, he saw the Son of Man, like, and then he saw that he was given a dominion, a kingdom, glory, and that peoples, nations, and every, men of every nation 
and every language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Daniel saw that all the way back, that this one would come. He would be the son of man. He would come on the clouds and he would have a dominion, a rulership, a kingdom that would last forever. It will never pass away. Every empire that has ever existed on earth has passed away at some point. I mean, we think about all the ones we are today. Give us some time. But if you go by the Roman Empire, the Greeks, the Babylonians, all of them, they just, they're gone. British Empire is gone. It always happens, except for one. When Jesus Christ comes to rule, and he'll be in Jerusalem ruling the whole world, that's an empire that will never, ever end. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Daniel was a great prophet. He had amazing visions of things that were centuries, centuries in the future, even for us. And yet here he sees this vision. And who does he see? He sees the Son of Man. Ah, subject for the weekend. Son of Man, Son of God. Daniel saw him. It's written in the Old Testament. So those who cared to study the Old Testament in totality would have known that. As soon as they heard Son of Man, they should have immediately gone to Daniel and said, this is the one. This is the chosen one. He is coming. He's coming. He's called out. Jesus is called the Son of Man. I'm excited. It's amazing. Do you think that's what most of them had in mind? No. Sad. Tragic. Tragic. Pastor Rory gave me a lot of insight on Nicodemus in this regard. How, How could the teacher of Israel not know what was in the prophet Ezekiel? Because he chose not to. I mean, that's that simple, you know. In that day and age, the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was one, they were experts on part of the Bible. Part of the Bible, right? Today we have experts on part of the Bible, right? They want to stay all the time in part of the Bible. But you see, the call is to know all of the Bible. And so, Pastor Roy pointed out to me, you know, that, that those Pharisees, they didn't really care about the prophets. Big Mistake. Huge mistake. Daniel talks about the Son of Man. It's a kingdom made up of all peoples. All nations. All languages. Think about it. He will rule the entire earth. Every nation. Every plot of land across this whole earth. He'll be ruling. And that will be forever. Forever. Daniel. So that's why I say if you want to get people who are interested in the latest and the greatest and the you know, exceptional and all of that, tee up Daniel for them. Hope they make it to chapter 7, however. When they learn that there will be a king one day who will have dominion over the entire earth. And don't you want to be lined up with him? I think it would be a really good idea, actually. To be lined up with the one, especially since he's loving and kind and righteous and just and, and, and is a bringing peace. That's the Son of Man. And not only that, but what? It will be an everlasting dominion. No one will ever have to worry. Are we going to be attacked? You know, the, the people that are in the kingdom of Jesus, they're going to say, you know what? I think Russia and China are getting some more nuclear weapons. Are we in trouble? Never going to happen. Because the, the whole, he will have dominion over the entire world. Nothing happens without him saying it can happen, ultimately. I mean, think about it. Think about that. Everlasting dominion. He will rule over the entire earth forever. 
All right. So this kingdom will never be destroyed. And it turns out that in the New Testament, this very passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter seven is quoted several times in the New Testament. Every time it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no mistaking the fact that the one that Daniel saw in his vision in chapter seven is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of man. For example, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, 63. Matthew 26, 63. This is what I call a special passage for the subject this weekend anyway. Special passage is one that mentions both the Son of Man and the Son of God. There are a few of those. This is one of them. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. The setting. Jesus has been captured. The soldiers had come in, in, the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had beaten him. They had taken him. He had no sleep. His disciples abandoned him except for John. And now he's being tried in front of the high priests, the council. Okay. It'll be an illegal trial. The, 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 the decision was made before they even showed up. Okay. Not justice. That will never happen under Jesus when he's the king. Okay. In any event, Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. But Jesus kept silent like a lamb being sheared. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ the Son of God. Now keep in mind that the Son of God was right in front of him. And he had the chutzpah, that's a Jewish word I suppose, right? <laughs> to say, I adjure you by the living God. Now if Jesus wasn't here to save us from the sins and he could have been a wise guy at that moment, he says, what are you talking about, my father? <laughs> I adjure you by the living God. That you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now look how Jesus answers him. In line of where we've just been, that's why it's great sometimes to go back and look at the Old Testament. Go back and see the reference. What does it mean? Use your concordance. Find Son of Man and so forth. Because look, this is what he does. He's asked, tell me whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Now, of course, that was meant to sort of be ironic because they certainly didn't say it as if they believed it. But he's like, I'm going to take what you said because it's true. You said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see. Now, listen to these words. See if they sound familiar. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes, by the way, the first part, Psalm 110, which is another huge messianic chapter in the Bible, by the way. Psalm 110, There's, there are certain chapters, uh, passages, and so forth that are in the Old Testament now that are clearly, clearly speaking about Jesus Christ. We call them Messianic Psalms or other passages, okay? Psalm 110, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That thing is quoted seven times in the New Testament, at least. It's always talking about Jesus. And then Daniel, coming on the clouds of heaven, so he's referring here to his seated at the right hand of the Father and his return at the second coming. We're going to see more of that. 
going to see more when we look at the specifics of what the Son of Man is said to be about, mostly in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see those things come up again. The, the, the mission that he was on. The fact that he had to die for the sins of the world, buried and raised from the dead. And by the way, whoever believes in that Messiah, that Son of God, will never perish, but have eternal life. So you may be thinking, yeah, I know about this. I know about the Son of Man. I think I know about him. It's just two different titles for the same guy, right? People can't figure out what's what. It doesn't matter. Well, that's why I'm here this weekend. Tell you it does. <laughs> All right, I've got to close now so that we'll have some uh, keep on schedule tonight. I'll be back, right? Yeah, I'll be back. Five-minute break. Five, oh, that fast? Yeah. Five-minute break and I'll be back. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for gathering us all here together as one family, friendship, fellowship, care, concern, one mind, one heart. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the subject of every passage of the Bible. We thank you, Father, for all you've done for us through him. We ask now, Father, to help us continue as we come back to be able to just receive what you've prepared for each one of us tonight in your word. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. With all the other not quite, with all the never get it right. Just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus stage fright and David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen and you changed the world well the moral of the story is everybody's got a purpose so when I hear that devil start talking to me saying who do you think you are I say I'm, I'm just a nobody
Welcome back, everybody. I didn't take attendance, so I'm not sure if everybody made it back. I think we have a couple of new people, too, in case somebody didn't make it back. So we're at full strength anyway, so that's good. That's good. <laughs> we are looking at the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. And we've been looking how the Old Testament talks about the Son of Man. We saw Daniel talking about that vision he had about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And then we were just in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Because the New Testament, there's three New Testament passages that quote that passage we were in in Daniel. And um, we saw one of them, we just ended there. So if your Bibles are still there, you can take a look at it again. But if not, you can, I'll just read it again and we'll go forward. Because now what we're about to look at is, okay, so we know that Jesus is the Son of Man. But now we also have to show that he's the Messiah and the Christ. So more to the point that, that we can equate the Son of Man with the Messiah. That's the, that's the, that's the work we've got to get done now. Just say, okay, I see the Son of Man. Daniel talks about him. You've been mentioning the Messiah. Put them together. And that's basically where we're headed next. So again, this is uh, in Matthew 26, verses 63 to 64. We were here, and this is where the high priests at the illegal trial says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that coming on the clouds of heaven is a quotation from Daniel 7, where we were a few minutes before we ended. Okay, so that's the Son of Man. What about the Messiah? What about the Christ? What about that? How do you know that the Son of Man equals the Messiah, equals the Christ? Well, I want to take us back to the Gospel of Matthew, but this time go all the way to the beginning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Bless you. Matthew 1, 1. Okay. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. I want you to notice something about this. Okay, I want you to notice. He's going to talk about Jesus. Notice what he says. Notice what he says very carefully. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Interesting. The son of David. How interesting. And then the son of Abraham, he's going back in the genealogy of Jesus. What is that? You know, this one begat that one, begat that one, begat all of that. There's too much begotten in the movies these days, but whatever. <laughs> so, but where does he go? What does he point out? In other words, if you're looking at your own family tree, and, somebody, and it goes back, you know, 14 plus 14 plus 14, whatever that is. Matt, you're fast. 42. It goes back 42 generations, right? And you can only say three names, Right? Which ones would you think you'd say? Right? That's Matthew's decision here, right? He picks three striking ones. I want you to notice. I want you to ask the question, what do they all have in common? He talks about, first of all, the Messiah. The Messiah. And then he says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham. Who is he? The first one. The first Hebrew, actually. First Hebrew, started out life as a Gentile, ended up as a Hebrew. 
Kind of like Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, so he started out as a Hebrew, as a, as a Gentile, ended up as a Hebrew. That's where he starts. But Jesus said, all the things Matthew said, well, the things I want you to know about the genealogy of Christ, I want you to know uh, there was a starting point with Abraham. But as everybody knows, the human race did not begin with Abraham, did it? Who? Very good, Adam. Because if you were to go to the, don't go there, but if you go to the Gospel of Luke, he gives another genealogy. Only he starts with Adam. Now you have to say to yourself, I wonder if this tells me something about the focus of each of those writers of the gospel. They're doing the same thing, but they're mentioning different starting points. Well, it's because Luke is there to, among other things, to show that Jesus is human. So he goes to the first human. So Matthew must have been trying to show that Jesus was Jewish, do you think? Which they already knew, but not only not only Andrew, but he was the son of David and he was the Messiah. So, in other words, it's a it's a look at the Jewishness of Jesus, if I could put it that way. But in particular, to show the Jews that this is their promised Messiah, this is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So here we have Jesus, and here we have two facts: one, he's the Messiah, and two, the Messiah is the Son of David. So we've got to kind of put this together a little bit. I know you know the answer, but I want you to be able to prove it from Scripture, right? So Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is the son of David. Okay? What about that? Why, is, why does David show up in chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew, who's writing to the Jews about the Jewishness of Jesus and the fact that he's their promised king? Why David? Because he was the king before, right? Not only that, but the Lord had made a promise to David. He made a promise that one of his descendants in the future, 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 would sit on his th- son, David's throne and he would sit on it forever. Forever. That's just not to sound familiar. Because remember we were talking in, in Daniel how there was a kingdom promise, the son of man, that would go on forever. So I hope you're starting to see these two come together. Come together. Messiah, son of man, one and the same, Jesus. The Lord will establish the throne of David forever. Now I want you to go to, to 2 Samuel now with me. 2 Samuel. Promise, promises of God. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Who is this guy? He's going to be going all over the place. I wanted to stay in John at least. Oh, Matthew and Daniel and... Who knows where else we're going? I don't know. I do. That's why I'm up here. Anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel. I'll give you a huge hint. It's after 1 Samuel. Don't say I don't think about you. I don't care. 2 Samuel 7. The Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the son of David. And the Lord promised David that one of his descendants would sit on David's throne and he would sit there forever. Second Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. The Lord is now, well actually the prophet is speaking to him, but the Lord is really speaking to him. 
When your days are complete, David, and you lie down with your fathers, die, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. One of the things about Old Testament prophets is very often they talk about something and it's, it, it, it sounds like they're just talking about something that's happening or about to happen back then. Then all of a sudden they transport you to a totally different place and you find out, wait a minute, how did I get here? How did I get there? We're studying Isaiah on Thursday evening in our Bible study and he does that all the time. He'll talk about a virgin having a child and he's actually talking about his own wife who was a virgin when, she was, when he married her and having a baby that's going to be assigned to the king of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. But then all of a sudden, pff, all of a sudden he's there and he's talking about Jesus being born of a virgin. You see it? That's how, the, that's how a lot of the prophets work. Same thing here. The first thing, if you were reading this and reading it for the first time and you kind of knew a little bit about Jewish history and he says, oh, wait a minute, look what's going on. He's saying, I will, I will have a descendant after you I will establish his kingdom. That's got to be Solomon. See, see, right after David, he had a son. His name was Solomon. And he had a kingdom. In fact, in fact, the kingdom that Solomon ruled was the greatest kingdom until Jesus comes back that, that the Jews ever had. So they were perfectly within their rights to think of, well, maybe he's talking about Solomon. That thing makes sense. Yeah, he has, he has someone coming forth from him. He'll have a kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. By the way, Solomon built the temple. So, so far, this is sounding pretty good. I got it. I know. It's it's Solomon. It's Solomon. Well, we'll read the second part of verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I used to be from Boston area, New England. (laughs) Well, that's not Solomon anymore, is it? No. It's got to be somebody else. This is another thought process that any Jew in Jesus' time should have gone through. Right? Wait a minute. David was promised a son that would rule, and this one was going to rule forever. Forever. Who could that be? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But now notice what happens again after that. Verse 14. I will be a father to him. This is the Lord speaking. He will be a son to me. Ah. Now we're cruising along and we're like, that's the one. The Son of Man is the Son of God. And that's true. But now look where he goes again. When he commits iniquity. Can't be Jesus anymore. Jesus didn't commit any sins. Right? Can you see how they go back and forth? The prophets drive you crazy. Unless you're concentrating. And you say, I'm here to learn. Right? I'm not here to show I can follow everything and know it all before I begin. But I'm going to learn and going through this passage. And that's what we do. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And boy, did that happen to Solomon, if you know anything about his life. But my loving kindness will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, David. And then here we go back. Look at verse 16. We're on Solomon again, but not for long. Your, your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall endure before me, the Lord. What's that next word? Forever. Now we're talking Jesus. Now we're talking the Son of Man. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you think God makes promises and then he says, decides he won't keep them? Does he forget about them and say, oh man, I forgot about that with David. Well, too late. No. No, the Lord made David a promise that there would be a descendant of his that would sit on his throne forever. Forever. That is going to happen, my friends. 
It is going to happen. It's the son of David. Please look at Psalm 89. This should be exciting. I get excited. I do. I get, you might think after all these years, you know. It hasn't been that many years anyway. I mean, there's a lot, lot of guys who've been teaching way longer than I have. But when you stop to just, you know, sometimes you're just going to stop and enjoy a passage of its own merit and not speed along on to the next one. Or have your 10 minutes quiet time. You know, people have the quiet time. And then they're like, they're like halfway through a verse. Oh, that's it. Quiet time's over. Give me my, uh, I used to say MTV, but we don't have MTV anymore. Right? No. As a matter of fact, what, I'll tell you something that I used to do, and now it drives me crazy when I have to do it. And that is just to not have the whole paragraph. Like if you look at a scripture, right? I don't want to just take one sentence. I want to look at the whole thing, the, the context, right? That's how it was written, you know? Some, some of these people, they'll take a half a verse. And that'll be like their, whatever their, their life verse or whatever. It's half a verse. How can you possibly learn everything you need to learn out of half? Anyway, the frustrations of a pastor teacher. Psalm 89, verse 3. I made, I've made, this is the Lord again speaking. I have made a covenant. A covenant. A covenant is unbreakable. A covenant is something that the Lord promises. By the way, he promises it to Jews, the Israel. If you see covenant in the Bible, you have to understand that it is the Lord making an agreement with the nation of Israel. That's why it's nuts for people to say, I have a covenant marriage. No, you don't. You have a marriage of, hopefully, Ephesians chapter 5, but covenants are for the Jews. Can you get, can you just, let's make sure you know that. Covenants are for the Jews. Covenants are for the Jews. Covenants are for the Jews. That's why covenant theology is crazy. They talk about the fact that covenant theology is basically saying, you know what, we're going to take what was true for the Jews and we're going to make it true for the church. And if that doesn't confuse you, nothing will. That's basically covenant theology. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. All generations. That throne will be in Jerusalem. And it's coming. It's coming. So we see that the Messiah is the, what they call the greater son of David. Greater son. Yes, because... Solomon, as it turns out, was the lesser son. He had the greatest kingdom in history of the nation of Israel. But he would become the lesser son in relation to Jesus, the greater son, the greater son of David, the son of man, Jesus. And that Messiah will be promised, and he will be the king of Israel. He will be the king of Israel and sit on the throne of David forever. I want to emphasize Israel. Matthew, from whom we see many scriptures where he talks about the Son of Man in relation to Jesus. His mission was to teach the Jews about Jesus as their, as their king. Okay? When we talk about the, this, the Messiah, we are first and foremost talking about promises the Lord made to David that will be fulfilled in his people Israel when Jesus comes back. So, so you have to understand that. So much, much of what is said... Most, almost all of what is said about the Son of Man in the Bible has to do with Israel. After all, Daniel was a prophet to, to Israel, right? David was the king of Israel, right? And on and on and on you go. See, that's another thing where people get confused, where, where you've got to make certain you understand when the Lord is talking to Israel and when he's talking to the church. 
Because those are two very different things. Remember Jesus said, we saw this before, Son of Man, Son of God, earthly, heavenly. Well, there you go. That's, that's Israel and the church. Earthly and heavenly. This will save you a lot of confusion if you just understand this fact about the Bible and that there is a portion of the Bible that is speaking to the nation of Israel. Now, what's crazy about it is it's, in the, it's not just the Old Testament. Because you want to know something else? Matthew is written primarily to Israel. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to the nation of Israel. Book of Revelation to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, there's much more said about the nation of Israel in the Bible. Much, much, much more than there is about the church. Trouble is, the things about the church are the most amazing things that God has ever done for any people. That's why you've got to keep them straight. If you go looking around and try to find out where it is that, that Moses was, was made a new creation or had the Spirit indwell him or was in union with Christ, you won't find it. Why? Because that's, that's, that, what we're talking about there is the church. Church, Israel. Heavenly, earthly. Okay? Okay. Let's go to one more prophet because I have time, I think, for how much time do I have left now? Oh, I do? Yeah. Oh. Let me sit down for a minute and just, I'll have a smoke and we'll get back to you. Okay, then I'll take it. Mm-hmm. He was talking about Israel, and that, that brought a whole new light to that passage. I appreciate it. Sure thing, yeah. That'll happen, you know, when you start to say, okay, who's he talking to? When's this happening? What are the references? And if they're all Israel, 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 that should tell you something. What he's about to say is also about... <laughs> right! <laughs> Good! <laughs> Anyway, Isaiah chapter 9. <laughs> Moving right along. Isaiah chapter 9. The Messiah, the greatest son of David, promised king of Israel, will sit on the throne of David forever. Notice what is said about him in Isaiah. See, I told you, we're going somewhere else. That's it. I can only put my fingers in four books of the Bible, man. I got them over here in Daniel, and I got them over here in 2 Samuel, and John, and Matthew. That's it. I can't have another book. Isaiah, forget it. You just tell me about him. Okay, I'll tell you about him. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Messianic prophecy. Talking about Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And who's us? Test. Test time. Isaiah was a prophet to Israel. David was the king of Israel. Who's us? Israel, thank you. For a child will be born to us, Israel. A son will be given to us, Israel. And the government will rest on his shoulders. You see, where we're headed, we don't need an earthly government. Our citizenship is in heaven. So when we see the government on earth resting on the shoulders, that's Israel. That's Israel. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government 
or of peace. No end. Does that sound familiar? No end. Isn't that what the Lord promised David? A kingdom that will last forever? Isn't that the vision that Daniel had? It is. See, it's one and the same. The Messiah is the son of David, king of Israel, son of man. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, the things that Daniel says about the Son of Man, Daniel seven thirteen to 14, are also the things that Matthew and Second Samuel and Psalms and Isaiah say about the Son of David. The son of, it's Messiah. They're one and the same, in other words. When you see Son of David or Messiah, it's also the Son of Man. It's the same reference. Same reference. And we kind of know that. We know that the Son of David is Jesus, right? We know that the Son of Man is Jesus. We know the Messiah is Jesus. But now we know why they're all connected. So that we don't miss the key point of that, which is that, that this was promised to the Jews. Okay. Well, the gospel writers themselves have so much to say about the Son of Man. And they use that title to portray two aspects of Jesus. Two aspects of him. One far more than the other. The first one, again, now, now this is our, our head. What we're thinking now is, okay, I'm going to take Son of Man now. I've learned that it's the same as the Messiah. He's promised the kingdom. Now I want to see what's going on in the New Testament, in the Gospels about that. Okay? It'll come as no surprise that most we're going to mostly be in the Gospel of Talking about the Son of Man to the Jews. Which gospel are we going to? That's it. I'm leaving. Matthew! The one who wrote to the Jews. Come on. It's not... No. Yeah. All right. Son of Man. Some passages show that Jesus is human, but many more show his mission. And it's not a mission in heaven. Where is it? A mission on earth. Son of man, human. Son of man, mission on earth. Son of man, mission to the earthly people, the nation of Israel. Okay? But I want you to see that. See, there's, it's a lot of fun, actually, to not only... Some, tell, let me tell you that. And you're like, okay, I got it. Let me write that down. Somebody asks me again. I'm going to be smart and tell them about it. But I don't know where this is coming from, really. See, what we want to do is go through the gospel and several of the Gospels, and find the Son of Man and see what it says. Okay, don't take my word for it. We're going to do some of that now. We'll, we'll, continue, um, we'll continue tomorrow. So it turns out that Jesus uses the title of Son of Man for himself over 80 times. He uses that title for himself more than any other in the Gospels. What does that tell you about the Gospels? Do, 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 do. <laughs> yes, primarily the Gospels, with the exception of John, are directed towards Israel. They're about Israel. You know, there's passages where Jesus says, tells his disciples, he says, listen, don't you go to the Gentiles. I want you to stay in Israel. If he were presenting himself as the Son of God and the one who was going to have a universal church of all nations, if that's what he was doing at the time he was saying that, He's like confused, right? He wasn't doing that yet. In the Gospels, except for John, he is is bringing himself as the Son of Man and the promised Messiah to Israel. 
Shocker, isn't it? But it's true. You just read it. Watch how often he talks about the kingdom. Matthew especially. Show me anything in the, in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That talk about anybody being in union with Christ. No. Not in the synoptic gospels. There is in John. But that's another story. It's about Israel. It's about Israel. This is so important. So again, Jesus uses the title Son of Man for himself over 80 times. And we're going to primarily be in the Gospel of Matthew. But this study of the Son of Man. Now we will, of course, be looking at the Son of God, the title for Jesus later on this weekend. What do you think? Which Gospel will we be in then? Okay, so now we're looking at the Son of Man. We're studying the Son of Man. We're going to primarily be in the, I'm going to slow down, in the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> now, later on this weekend, hopefully, we're going to be, unless I have like a heart attack from nobody understanding, telling me who Israel is. <laughs> but later on, <laughs> thank you, but later on, we're going to, we're going to study the Son of God. Man is earthly, God is heavenly. Thank you, John. Yes, 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 yes. I'm having some little tiny anyway impact. Yes, we will turn to the Gospel of John when we study the Son of God. By the way, I know I'm giving you a hard time, but if you get that all straight, man, you've taken something with you this weekend. You really, really have to have those distinctions there understand such a notice oh yeah he's saying the son of man an awful lot what's he talking about oh he's saying this this one over here john son of god a lot what's he talking about oh that's how that's how we you know the the light bulb goes off on some things and we won't forget it that's why it's so that's why i love taking people to passages i know it's hard and i know you got to turn the pages a lot but i but then when you're there you're like oh i'm gonna remember this some i may not know the passage but i see the connection and that's so important all right so now let's look at some more passages, in, primarily in the Gospel of Matthew, that include the expression, the Son of Man. And let's see what they tell us about Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Matthew chapter 8, verse Matthew 8:20 Jesus said to him this is a person that said I'll follow you anywhere Ever ever have anybody say that to you How'd that work out Don't say it if you don't mean it Jesus said to him the foxes have holes. They have a home. And the birds of the air have, ha- have nests. They have a home. But the Son of Man, there it is, has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man was homeless. Was he homeless in heaven? No, he was homeless here on earth. Son of Man. Son of Man. This brings out his humanity. Not only his humanity, but his lowliness. Think about it. 
Think about it. Who, ha- who could have a place to lay their head back then? Just about everybody else. Certainly that King Herod and all the scribes, the Pharisees, the, all the big shots, they had a place to lay their head at night, but not Jesus. It's, it's, it's incredible. That not only would, would God's Son become human, which is enough of a step down, it's an infinite step down, by the way. I wouldn't know directly because I never was God, but it's true, right? You can, you can see that if I'm God and I step down, become a man who, you know, can't fly, can't walk, gets tired, and all the other things that means being human, that's a step down. But then you find out that not only that, but he's stepping down some more. He's going to say, I'm not even going to have a place to live. And then at the end, he's going to step down even more. He says, I'm going to die for y'all. That's, that's who he was. And, and this is astounding. It's one of the most astounding facts in the Bible about what we call the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. The word became flesh. He took on a form of a slave in order to save us. Please look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Curveball. I got a curveball for you. Want to know what it is? I'm going to read the King James Version. How, How am I to interpret that groan? Let me tell you something. There's a lot of things about the King James Bible that are superior to the New American Standard. I am not a King James only. Believe me, I teach out of the New American Standard, but there are some things. Let me give you a couple. One is this passage. Whenever I read this passage, I always go to the King James Version. I'm going to show you why that's so important in a moment. The other thing is, is that, you know the word you, Y-O-U, in our sophisticated modern English? Can you tell the difference between you and if I'm talking to one person or I'm talking to 50? If I, if I like, so listen, you are the ugliest person I've ever seen in my life. Am I telling you all you're ugly or am I telling one person? I don't know. It's you. It's the same you. It's, in other words, singular or plural, we don't have a different word for it in the English. It's just you. Not true in the King James English. You see, there's thou. People make fun of that because they don't understand it. There's thou and there's ye, Right? You and, and thou, or thee. And all. Well, the thous and the these are actually a form of honor because he's speaking to one. It's an individual, thee and thou. When you see it in the King James Bible, you can be sure he's talking to one person. You, Peter. You, Nathaniel. When he says, saying, ironically enough, because we don't have a word for it, when he says thee and thou, it's a singular. When the King James says ye and you, it's plural. Just so you know that. That's why there are some reasons to use the King James. This is one of them, though. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. The humility of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He, this doesn't say he wasn't equal with God. It says the opposite. It says he was equal with God, which of course makes sense. He is God. He made him, but he was in the form of God, the essence of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because that's who he was. And yet, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. Here's the humility coming in. He took upon him the form of a slave, more humility, 
and be and was made in the likeness of men. The word became flesh. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself more. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. By the way, that's not any death. That is the most crushing, horrible, painful, humiliating, wretched death, murder, or terrible punishment that mankind has ever come up with. The cross, the crucifixion. He's God, comes down in the likeness of men, but really more of a slave to men, a servant, and he becomes obedient even to death. Basically, this is saying that my father's will, I'm going to carry it out even though I know it leads to my death. Not just any death, but again, the most humiliating, horrible, vicious, painful, cruel death of all. That's what this is saying. That's, humili- that's humbling yourself. And then verse 9, wherefore, God also, notice who does the action now. Jesus humbled himself, but then somebody exalted him. Who's that? His father. God, the father, also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, by the way, this is his humanity. When it says Jesus, it's just humanity. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That can make you weep. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for giving us this time tonight to just look at your Son, to just concentrate on him, to just understand why it was that he called himself the Son of Man over 80 times as recorded in the Gospels. To understand that he did all of this because he was on a mission from you. The mission was to save the world. And, 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 and he carried that out perfectly in obedience to you as a son. We ask, Father, now that you would uh, help us to retain the most important things that you want us to retain from tonight's message, Father, and that we would come now and and sit under the teaching of pastor clark the pastor of this ministry as he brings us to the places he's going to bring us to in terms of worshiping and honoring you and your son we ask this in the name of jesus christ by the power of the spirit amen
Cancelled. I repeat. Welcome back. Uh, thank you, Pastor John Farley, for an amazing lesson. And we look forward to learning more about the Son of Man and the Son of God, that person that we love so much. So, um, when I think about your lesson, John, I think of us looking at the Son of Man and the Son of God. I, think I see us looking up to Him. And in my first lesson, we're going to be taking a look from behind God's eyes. And what I want to have you think about is how God sees you. And so, you know, one of the things, one of the images that I have when I think about this is the Jesus the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, um, Brazil. I think Rio de Janeiro is in Brazil. But, you know, it's this big, gigantic statue of Jesus Christ. And when you look up at that statue, it's just an amazing and breathtaking experience. It's so beautiful. But if you get on YouTube, you can see a video where people who clean the statue routinely are standing behind the statue and looking out through the statue's eyes. And that view is even more gorgeous. And what I want my ministry to represent is us looking at ourselves and the world through Jesus' eyes. And I don't want us to have me interpreting what I think Jesus means. I want to know what the Bible is saying. What is God saying to us? And then just present that. Because that's what matters. It's what he thinks, not what we think that matters. So the homecoming lesson uh, for tonight is how does God see you? And so that's a question that I want you to entertain for the weekend. And I want you to write that question down. And when you're back at home, I want you to write out what your answer to it is. Because I guarantee you, if I gave you five minutes to write right now, how does God see you? And I just write down your thoughts. They would be so shallow and so superficial that they would disgust you to see them on paper. And this is a group of people who've been studying 
about God for a really long time, and yet we have just such a small view of Him. So I want to I want to take you into a look at how God sees you. So I'd really like you to stop and think about the question for a second. It'd even be a good idea if you'd write your answer down this weekend. And at the beginning of the lesson, I told you one of the hundred ways that I see Pastor John Farley. I love it when we teach together because I always get time to reflect and to write exactly how I see him. And then I get to tell him about it. And, you know, me telling Pastor Farley about how I feel about him is a regular feature of our friendship. I'll just call him on a day and I'll say, hey man, I was just thinking about you and I just want you to know how much I love you and how much I appreciate you and how grateful I am to learn from you because I don't have to do my pastoring alone. If I get a thought that I think came from the Holy Spirit, I'll call John and I'll say, hey man, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think? And when he starts laughing hysterically, I know I should probably continue. <laughs> I should probably continue to rethink what I, where I am at this point. And I, I can't even put into words how grateful I am about that. So if I was to really reveal all of the, the amazing aspects of our friendship, it would take forever to tell you about it. And it's always fun for me to come to things like this so that I can share those things with someone other than him. But I just told you a minuscule amount of information in the opening of the lesson about how I see him as a friend, but there's so much more to say. So if you wrote down what God thinks of you, that would be this minuscule amount of stuff about what God sees. But I really want to know, how does God see you? I want to know where you would get that information from if you wanted to know how God sees you. And I'm going to share some of that with you tonight, and I actually had to cut this lesson off at a point, because I was thinking, I'm going to get on about 8.50. These people are like, hey, I got to go to bed. (laughs) No, maybe I was thinking about myself. Maybe I, this is because I'm nine minutes from my bedtime right now. (laughs) So anyway, maybe you could write a few sentences about how God sees you, but there's so much more that God has to say about you, and it's all in the Bible. How does God see you? In my executive coaching practice, if I want to paralyze a person that I'm coaching, I ask them five questions. Who are you? Where did you come from? Where are you going? How will you get there? And what is your purpose in life? Who are you? That one kills them. Where did you come from? Where are you going? How will you get there? And what is your purpose in life? And because I have a spiritual life, I can answer those questions easily and I can back up the answers with Bible verses. Can you? My guess is you can't. We prefer to live in oblivion, especially about ourselves. Who are you? If somebody asks you that, can you answer who are you? No, we like living in oblivion. Yeah, I'm not talking about the collard green eating boy back there. All right, I get it. But we need to be able to describe this. So what do we do? We count on profiles to tell us who we are. The Myers-Briggs type indicator, the social styles profile, strengths finders, 2.0, emotional intelligence. These are all profiles that will give you some hint about yourself. The Enneagram. But 
You know, it's fa- as a matter of fact, it would be a rather bold question for you to go up to someone this weekend and ask them, how do you see me? Because we're around each other all the time. Why don't you ask somebody, how do you see me, and then wait for their answer without interrupting? And one of the things that's sort of funny about doing that is you'll get such an amazing answer about the affection that the person has for you that it'll embarrass you. But what you'll also get is a picture of somebody looking at you from over here, which is a vastly different view of you looking at the world and assuming what the people on the outside of you are thinking. So, if you ask somebody how they see you, that's a bold question. It'll take more boldness for you to hear the answer without interruption and to really take it in. I ask you again, how does God see you? In this first lesson, I'll offer you an answer to this all-important question, and perhaps you'll hear little in this lesson that you don't already know. But my question is this, how often in your daily life do you summon what you know when you're being persuaded by the kingdom of death and darkness to forget about who you are as a believer in union with Christ, who is a a personal possession of the sovereign God of the universe. Because every day, your flesh is talking to you, and it's telling you how lousy you are, and how incompetent you are, and how worthless you are, and how nothing ever works out for you, and you willingly shake your head like a bobblehead and say, yeah, that's me, that's really me, I just like that. So, it's not enough to know the things that I'm going to talk to you about tonight, it's important for you to summon those things when you're being attacked mentally by someone who's trying to tell you that you're someone other than who you are. So, how often do you delete the thoughts placed in your head by the flesh resident in you, a flesh that is way more powerful and way more cunning than you, and replace them with biblical thoughts that are statements of fact about you. And isn't that something? The biblical things that God says about you that you're going to hear about tonight are statements of fact. It is not conjecture. It is not opinion. It's not, oh, I guess so. It's facts. But seldom, I guess, do you summon those things when you're under attack. Well, in this lesson, I'd like to give you ammunition for your defense. All right, so before we start the lesson, let's hear some music. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See how great and unconditional love God the Father has bestowed on us believers in Christ, that we would be called children of God the Father. And that's what we are. And for this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. How does God see you? Hillsong Worship says, For us, to the Lord, I am who you say I am. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love. For me, oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free. 
Yep. You ain't who you say you is. <laughs> you who he say you is. Amen. <laughs> How does God see you? That's the lesson. I want that question to ring in your minds all weekend. How does God see you? There's a way God saw you before you were born. He saw you as someone he was crafting from nothing to something. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Formed is the Hebrew word yasar, the work of an artist. You're a piece of art. And he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living soul. God saw you as he sees himself. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible says a lot of times son, uh, it refers to man, but it's not referring to men. It's referring to mankind, male and female. God saw all your days on earth before he created you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, all the stuff that surprises you that you do, I would never. <laughs> yeah, right. And he saw all of that before he created you and created you anyway. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes, O Lord, have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordered to me. God has allotted you a number of days, and you will not be on this planet one more day or one less day than he already planned a long time ago. When as yet there was not one of those days experienced. He did it a long time ago. Amazing. God saw you as part of his detailed plan. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God is a detailed God, and he knows every single detail of you. Way better than you know the details of you. God looked into the inner recesses of your being, and he knows you better than you know yourself, Psalm 139, verse 4 says this, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to say. He knows everything about you. It, you know, that, that's what Monica was talking about. You get me. God gets you. And he loves what he gets. He loves, loves, loves you. And we let the flesh talk to us and try to convince us that we're something less than that. No. Tell it to shut up. It's wrong. And all throughout the Bible, it's telling us a whole different story that we're ignoring no more. God created you full of wonder. Psalm 139, 14. I will give thanks to you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Get this in your head. Everything God does is perfect, and that includes you. Amen? Amen. You are perfect. 
You are exactly who he says you are. You are exactly where he wants you right this minute. You may be dissatisfied with your life and what you've created, and you may think in your head, oh, you've got such a better idea about what ought to be going on and what would make you happy. (laughs) I hate that expression. He makes me feel. She makes me feel. That makes me happy. Own up. Happiness is a decision. And it's a journey. And nobody on the outside does that for you. But God wants you to be happy. He wants everything about you. He wants you to know how amazing you are at all times. How does God see you? There's the way God sees you at physical birth. He saw you separated from him on the wrong side of a barrier, and helpless and hopeless to have a relationship with him. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says this, For those practicing ungodliness and unrighteousness, those are spiritually dead persons, which we all were at physical birth, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who created the creature, the creator, the Lord, God the Son, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, that's what we do. We come here, and we come here, and we're unbelievers, and we blend right into the fabric of the world. And stay safe. (laughs) Stay safe. Be healthy. Ugh. Gets me just absolutely crazy. And we just start parroting everything. It's all good. It's all good. It's not. All good. God saw your inadequacies. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, All have sinned in the past when Adam sinned, and all keep on sinning, and all keep on falling short of the glory of God. He knows your inadequacies. You don't have to sit around and beat yourself up for your inadequacies as if somehow he's looking down and saying, God, I can't believe this happening to you. He saw everything before you were even created. He is not surprised by the things that happen to you. He loves the things that happen to you. And he loves more than what happens to you, what you're going to do about it, through him. He loves seeing you in a jam so he can help you out of it. So he can solve it for you. So he can give you uh, 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 an insight into this gift he gave you called faith. That if you're just confident in him, everything's going to work out. If you could just relax in him and know that he's already ordered your steps. Because he's organized. And you matter to him. Every part of you matters to him. God saw when you were on the wrong side of a barrier that you were destined for the lake of fire. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the earned wages of sin... The compensation paid for your sinful works is the second death in the lake of fire. He knew that that was going to happen to you if something didn't change. It wasn't your fault, but it was your circumstance. God saw spiritual death in you. You were on the wrong team. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.2, in which you formerly walked according to the curriculum of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air. You're listening to Satan's crap and following it. Walking according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What is that spirit? It's those who are in rebellion against God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. As it is written, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the third verse of Ephesians. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest are who are in relationship with his wrath. Look, you know, I, I look at you guys, and some of you just look like, you know, just some of the best people in the world. You know, I, I can remember I, I can remember there was a time when I didn't think Larry Collins and, and Pastor John Farley ever committed sins. Honestly, because they're just such they're just such nice people. They're just such wonderful people. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I just I just feel so inferior because I did feel that way. It's on his left and those on his right. <laughs> what? What are you saying? I. I was just, you know, I, I, I just thought, I'm a horrible person and they're wonderful. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? <laughs> no. That might be it, but I don't know. But then, you know, as I got to know them and they started telling me about their lives and things that they've done wrong in their lives, I thought, oh, phew. God, I thought, I thought it was just me. No, sin has no color. And so, we, you know, I look at, at you guys, and, I, you know, some of you just look so innocent and so wonderful, but we, we know, don't we? <laughs> All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. We already know. Right? There it is, Romans 3.10. It is written, there's no creature who's righteous before God, not even one. So... We were in a pretty desperate state at physical birth. Then, the best but in the world. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, Romans 3 is the biggest indictment against the human race ever. I remember when I read that for the first time, and I didn't know anything about exegesis or isagogics or any of the rest of the crap. I just knew, I read that, and I said, if this is true, I am a horrible person. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none that seek for God. Their throat is an open grave. Read that indictment. And by the time you get from verse 1, Romans 3, verse 1, to Romans 3, verse 20, you're almost weeping. You think, how could I ever please God? How could I ever be important to him? Ever. But now, Romans 3.21 turns everything around. But now, apart from the law, apart from keeping the law, another principle entirely, the righteousness from God, which has been made clearly visible, being witnessed to by the Mosaic law and the sacrificial offerings, and being witnessed to by the Old Testament prophets and direct statements. The righteousness from God. He says, I, look, I know you're not righteous. I just described you, and it's horrible, isn't it? But I've got something for you. 
in my mercy and in my compassion for you, my creature, my possession. I've got something for you, my own righteousness, and I'm going to give it to you and you can never lose it. Oh, man. That's an amazing God. That's the God we have, an amazing God. Are you starting to get a kind of a look about how he looks at you? How he saw you before you were even born, and then even when you were in that horrible state of spiritual death before you became a believer in Christ, that he was seeing these things about you, but he was feeling compassion towards you. Do you see that? Answer me. Yes. <laughs> All right, we'll take a five-minute break. <laughs> take a five-minute break, and when we come back, we'll get, continue to get the biblical answer to the question, how does God see you? Captivated, say it, I'm on a whole new retreat. My space invaded, upgraded, I hear you talking to me. It's in the boom of the thunder, it's in the cool of the rain. And I'll say, I don't ever want to get away. Tonight is beautiful, it's got my mind on you. And everywhere I turn is a reminder. Take 
back. The homecoming lesson, how does God see you? So now that you're a believer in Christ, how does God see you? Well, from the moment, from this moment on, he sees you differently. And the moment was Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. There was a moment in your life where you decided that Jesus Christ was the person that you were going to put your faith in for your salvation and that you were no longer going to count on yourself. And so many things happened at that moment. You moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. The, through the baptism of the Spirit, you were placed into union with Christ, fellowship with Christ, a fellowship you could never get out of. You were eternally secure because God the Holy Spirit sealed you until the day of redemption. I could go on and on and on and tell you all the amazing things that happened as a result of one single decision that you made at a moment in time. But at that point in time, a whole transformation begins. So how does God see you? Well, first of all, you are transformed from an old man to a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in union with Christ, and all believers in Christ are, there is a new creation. The old man things passed away. That means they died. And behold, new things have come. You are not a cleaned-up version of your previous self. You are a completely new creature. And God the Holy Spirit is responsible for conforming you to the image of the Son. And He has never failed once to do His job. And so you don't have to worry that you're going to screw Him up somehow. He's not going to fail with you. You are not going to be the first Christian He fails with. You're transformed from a piece of clay to a work of art from the hands of the artist. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, We believers in Christ are God the Father's workmanship. We are a piece of art. We are a canvas on which he is painting a masterpiece, created to be in union with Christ for good works, which good works God the Father prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I have, uh, today, while I was taking a couple of breaks from doing the lesson, I was uh, being pretty contentious with a group of people from systematic theology who were talking about how we as believers in Christ are a pivot, and we as mature believers provide all this blah, blah, blah to the nation. What a bunch of crap. This is why we're successful in life right here, Ephesians 2.10, because God ordered a series of things for us to do, and we simply walked into those things and said, yes, I will do that. That's it. He doesn't need our help to get his plan done. He's happy to have our help, and he orders the help that he wants, but he doesn't need our help. You are transformed as a believer in Christ from sinner to saint. One of the things that irritates me to the max is when I hear believers in Christ describing themselves as sinners. You are not sinners because you sin. A sinner is an unbeliever. You are a saint. From the moment of salvation, you are no longer spiritually dead. You are no longer ungodly. You are no longer unrighteous. You are no longer an unbeliever sinner. God transforms you into a saint. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God the Father demonstrates his unconditional love toward all mankind 
and that while we were yet sinners, while we were unbelieving, unrighteous, ungodly ones, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, taking our place. Romans chapter 1 verse 7 says this, and this letter is written to all of you who are the divinely loved ones of God the Father. That's a believer in Christ. When we hear brethren and we hear beloved, what does it mean? You are divinely loved by the sovereign God of the universe. You believers in Christ living in Rome, saints by calling, not sinners, saints by calling from God. The set-apart one, set apart for a set of privileges that staggers the imagination. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. How does God see you? You are transformed from unbeliever to priest. You represent yourself before God with no intermediaries between you and him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the first part, but you believers in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. How does God see you? You are transformed from a commoner to an ambassador. You represent God in Satan's kingdom, planet Earth. John chapter 12, verse 31 says that this is Satan's kingdom for right now. Now judgment is upon the world, and the ruler of the world, Satan, will be cast out. He will be dethroned at a future time. But Philippians 3.20 says this, As believers in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, from which heaven we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do ambassadors do? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, 9, the second part says, We proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We share the gospel message. We go forward and tell people about Christ. And no matter what we think of those people, and there are a lot of people that I've told about Christ that, frankly, I don't like, and I wish they weren't in heaven. But I'm still going to tell them about them because that's what God has asked us to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. You are transformed. How does God see you? You are transformed from unrighteousness to absolute righteousness. To get into heaven, you must be perfect as God is perfect. And there is no way you could ever achieve that on your own. Therefore, at the moment of salvation, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ impute their own righteousness to you as your admission ticket to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God the Father in union with Christ. How does God see you? You are transformed from unholy and condemned to holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us believers in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in union with Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, just as God the Father chose us believers in Christ to be in union with Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight without blemish before God the Father for all eternity. Cannot wait to be face to face with God the Father for all eternity. How does God see you? You are transformed from union with Adam to union with Christ. At the moment of salvation, through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, 
you are placed into union with Christ, a union you can never exit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, In Adam all die, but in union with Christ all shall be made alive. How does God see? Are you tired of this? No? Because, you know, tomorrow I'm going to teach about Satan. I know y'all are going to be leaning all up into my pulpit. Oh, tell us some more about him. I like him. Now I'm telling you about you. You're kind of like, we're tired of this. (laughs) By the way, who said we start tomorrow at 8? How about if we start at 9? Okay. Is that going to break anybody's heart? Okay, so we start at 9. Say again. Breakfast will be at eight fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Obviously, not a morning person. <laughs> oh boy, how does God, how does God see you? You are transformed from being run by the flesh to being controlled by the Spirit. You are indwelled by God the Holy Spirit, making your body a temple to the Lord. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says this. However, you believers in Christ are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and of course it does. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, and unbelievers don't, That one, the unbeliever, the unholy, unrighteous, unregenerate one, does not belong to Christ. But you do. You belong to Christ. How does God see you? You're transformed from slavery to redemption. You are purchased from slavery to sin. sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. This is the verse that could have saved me 21 years of Roman Catholicism and 29 years of systematic theology. 50 years in slavery. Could have all been... (laughs) That ain't funny. All of that could have been saved with one verse. For sin shall not any longer be a master, a Lord that is sovereign over you believers in Christ, for you are not under law, you are under grace. See, a a Christian who hasn't studied the book of Romans doesn't understand Christianity, period. Period. I remember one time I said, you know, the one Bible book I'm not going to teach is Romans. Yeah. And you know why? Because I was traumatized. When I was teaching with another pastor, we were in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, for three years, making up doctrine after doctrine. (laughs) Uh, Romans chapter 9, 1 to 6. Now, first of all, the first eight chapters of Romans are to us as believers in Christ. Chapters 9 to 11 says what happened to the Jews. We shouldn't have even been paying that much attention to that part. See what I'm saying? It's just crazy. The stuff that Pastor John's saying about uh, the earthly group and the heavenly group, we're the heavenly group. We got to look in here and see what he's saying to the heavenly group. We're the badasses. (laughs) We are. We're the ones with the blinged out resurrection bodies. Moses is going to (laughs) be, yeah. Moses is going to be looking at us like, Man, where'd you get that resurrection body? Oh, I'm a church age, man. 
<laughs> I know, you know, the Red Sea thing, that was cool, though. I got to tell you that. <laughs> but how about when you hit that rock? That was not smart. <laughs> That's why them people was whining out there, because you hit that rock. <laughs> Mary Ba. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 say this, Knowing that you believers in Christ were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. First Peter 1 Peter 1.19 But you were redeemed with precious blood, as from a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. How does God see you? Well, he see one of the things from there, he sees you as being important enough to shed his blood for you. How does God see you? You are transformed from exile to reconciled. The barrier between you and God was removed by Christ's work on the cross, and God no longer has anything against you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 say this, But now, you believers in union with Christ, who were formerly far off when you were unbelievers, have been brought near to God the Father by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 14, For the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his very person is our peace. One of my favorite Greek words, Irene. He is our peace. Who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one group and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. I was thinking about this in the shower today. I was thinking about how uh, when, when I was in systematic theology, they talked about the United States being a client nation to God. Give me a break. Everything God does is one. He's got one group the Jews, he's got one nation, Israel, that's it. And then what happened when Israel didn't respond? In come the Gentiles, and what was the first thing he did when he sent Paul to the Gentiles? He took the two groups and made them into one group and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's how he worked. Everything is one with him. He's so simple. He's so crystal clear. So clear. Now we want to complicate it. It's not complicated. He's not complicated. Ephesians 2, 15. How did he break down the barrier of the dividing wall? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the intense hatred, which is the Mosaic law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in union with himself, the Lord Jesus Christ make the two groups into one new man, thus establishing peace meaning God has nothing against us. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we believers in Christ say face to face with all these things from Romans eight twenty six to eight twenty nine? If God the Father is for us believers in Christ, and he is, who is ever going to be successful against us? And the answer is? Nobody. Nobody. Romans eight thirty two. God the Father who did not spare his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but delivered him over for us all. If God did that amazingly strong thing, the amazingly strong thing that you would never do, sending your child to die for strangers and enemies, if he did that amazing thing, how will the Father not also, with our union with Christ now, as believers in Christ, not freely give us all things? Why is it that you don't see yourself as someone who can do anything anytime you want to and that the victory is guaranteed? 
you have to do some work. Right, John? Your house ain't going to sell itself, is it? <laughs> but, sir, it's funny how that the amount that you're going to get keeps going up. I wonder who's orchestrating that. Amen? That's how it goes. God is amazing. That's the funny thing, my investments. I've sat on my butt for a year, held hostage in my house, and what has God done with my investments? Up. Up like crazy. How about that? Oh, this is a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. How does God see you? You are transformed from free agent to a possession of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say this. Or do you not know? Whenever Paul says that, he's asking you, are you ignorant? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you believers in Christ? The Spirit whom you have from God the Father? You are not your own. You are a possession. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you believers in Christ have been bought with a price. What's the price? The precious blood of Christ. Therefore, command, glorify God in your body. You have a responsibility as a possession to glorify God in your body. How does God see you? You are transformed from guilty to justified. God the Father declares you legally righteous as a result of your union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 say this, For those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the Lord would be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans eight thirty, And those whom God the Father predestined, he also called, he invited us to the privilege of salvation. And these whom God the Father called, he also justified. And those whom God the Father justified, he also glorified. That's the event that we're waiting for in the future, our glorification. But what does it mean to be justified? You're declared legally righteous, which means every day God the Father walks through the halls of heaven and says, Pastor John Farley's coming up here one day. Anybody know him? Oh, yeah, we know him. Good, he's coming up. Pastor Rory Clark, we haven't decided on him yet. (laughs) No, I'm going to. He's announcing your name up there. How does God see you? You are transformed from the object of wrath to the focus of forgiveness. Every sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future, was imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross and judged, paid for by his blood. Therefore, all of your sins stand forgiven forever. Psalm 103, verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, That far, the Lord has removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's not even calculable. How does God see you? You are transformed from orphan to child of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, As many as received the invitation from Jesus to be saved, to them he gave the right to become children of God the Father, even to those who believe in Jesus' name. You guys are special. (laughs) Do you feel pretty special? So whenever, yeah, 
Absolutely. So whenever you're ready to beat yourself up next time, just take this out. Put it on. Remind yourself who you are. Remind yourself how God sees you. Stop beating yourself up when you make mistakes. It's a complete waste of time. I was playing golf with a guy the other day, and every time he hit a bad putt, which, by the way, for a golfer is every time we hit a putt, it's a bad putt because we're amateurs, he'd say, dummy, dummy. And then he'd see sand, and he'd say, sand trap. I said, stop being negative, man. Sand's not trying to trap you. It's a bunker. And you're not a dummy because you hit a bad putt. Stop. And then all of a sudden, he stopped doing it. He started putting better. It's like, cut it out. That's what we do all day. We take our imaginary rubber hose and beat ourselves up with it like, like we're all Catholic. Uh, as soon as you sin, the mandatory next step is to do penance. You have to hurt yourself. That's not how God sees you. Forget it. Paid for. Paid in full. Keep going. I got plans for you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close with a song. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 describe a glorious moment in divine history, one that all believers in Christ are looking forward to. It's obvious that Pastor Farley looked at my notes and stole the verse and then one-up me by saying the King James Version is better. I'll go with that. I like the new American snap. I ain't yeeing and yowing and theeing and thouing. Nah. I'm going to tell it like it is. <laughs> so here's what it says in the real translation. <laughs> Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the exact same essence as God the Father, equal in every way, did not regard equality with God the Father as the thing to be seized and held on to. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that thing we're waiting for, Philippians 2.9, For this reason also God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, and those who are under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord, that he is indeed God the Son, deity, to the glory of God the Father. I hope I'm there to see that. I think I will be. But I hope I'm there to see that and to see all the looks on the faces of the people who I told that to who didn't believe it. And I'm not going to say I told you so because I don't wish the lake of fire on my worst enemy. But I do want people to know that Jesus is the Christ. That's why that sign's hanging over my head. Jesus Christ is God, period. Well, June Murphy says it well. His name is Jesus in her song, Come See a Man.
Thank you, June. So we close each week with a doxology. What is a doxology? It's biblical words containing praise to our almighty God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Jesus, and he will make your path straight. For the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He'll be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might promote you at the proper time, slamming all your cares on his back, because he cares for you. He cares for you is a Greek idiom, and it means God considers your problems to be his responsibility. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, thanks for bringing us together here to hear about you, to look up to you and to see you as the Messiah, and as to see your Son as the Messiah and the Son of God and the Son of Man. And thank you for letting us see glimpses of how you unfolded this master plan in writing and revealed it to us so that we could know everything that you want us to know about him and about our futures. And thank you for a chance to look through your eyes at ourselves and to see ourselves as you see us with biblical backup, to know how much you love us, how much you forgive us, how much grace you extend to us when we make mistakes, and how much you have our best interests at heart. Make this conference an amazing transformation within our souls where we see the world differently, we see you differently, and we see each other differently. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.